All right, today on Landry.audio, Peter Robinson, policy fellow at the Hoover Institution. Peter spent six years working in the White House as speechwriter for both Presidents George H.W. Bush and Ronald Reagan. He is responsible for one of modern-day history's most memorable speeches, Mr. Gorbachev, Tear Down This Wall. I know him from watching years of his program, Uncommon Knowledge, where he has had the opportunity to interview some of the most interesting people on the planet. How are you today, Peter? I'm very well. Delighted to be speaking to someone in Australia, a country that I have never visited, but we we watched the Australian Open. My family are (laughs) addicted to tennis, and I keep thinking, oh my God. Goodness, that place looks beautiful. It's it's funny that you mention that because when they have that, I'm not a big tennis man myself, but Melbourne goes mm-hmm. through this very odd weather changes, and and they get one of the uh, some of the coldest winters that we have. And every week during our summer, which is when the Open down happens down here because yes. of the reverse um, seasons, during that week it just explodes and it gets to like 42 degrees, and it seems to only oh. happen for that one week. And 42 <laughs> would be what I assume about 105 in Fahrenheit or somewhere around That's- that temperature. And it only happens during during the well the tennis is on. Yeah, it does. I mean, there are. I can remember. I can recall this past year. There are matches when the the people on the the players on the court are just drenched. But still, in all, when they when the when the cameras pull away from the court and they do their color commentary, introducing American viewers to Melbourne. Those beaches look just wonderful. Well, Melbourne doesn't it doesn't have a lot of beaches, so you've got to drive. It doesn't. About. It's Melbourne. So this is they're, 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 This is okay. They're 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 filling my head with false visions. Still, there are beaches in Australia, right? Well, for someone who worked for Fox News, you shouldn't be too surprised by this. <laughs> <laughs> um, Melbourne Melbourne is um, it's not technically landlocked because it's got a river that goes through it, but right. you're about an hour away from accessing uh, any of the proper beaches, and, and down there you've got Bell's Beach, which is one of the stop spots for the World Pro Surf Tour. So guys like Kelly Slater um, and a number of other notable guys go there. Myself, I'm on the East Coast. Sydney, Newcastle, we are right on the water. Perth is right right on on the water. water. Yes, correct. And then once you start getting a little bit further north into areas like Brisbane, Brisbane doesn't have a a beach. It's a little bit more in the river as well. But you're starting to get a little bit too far north to be freely swimming in the oceans. That's when we start looking at crocs and stingrays and, and other notable guys that are, Got it. that are floating Got it. around in the water up there. But um, look, I appreciate your interest. As, as I said, I'm I'm an I'm an expat myself, a Canadian who moved down here. So it's always uh, it's always very enjoyable to to talk about these things with with people who are still um I guess you know other people back in the new world. So, but um, look, let, let's start our conversation there. Then in the intro, we you know we mentioned you know your work as a speechwriter and and some of the uh, I mean the tear down this wall speech is arguably the the most recognizable speech in, in sort of modern day politics i can't think of uh of perhaps anything that's going to be more memorable except for possibly hillary clinton saying donald trump is going to be our president but um how does um how does one get into a position to work in the white house there is no i can tell you the way i got into that position And you will shake your head in either disbelief or amusement or some combination of the two. It's politics. And what that means is there's no, at least in this country, it's not as if speech writing for a president is a civil service job for which you train and go through regular entrance examinations and so forth. I got the job in the following way. I graduated from Dartmouth College in New Hampshire here in this country 
I then studied for a couple of years at Oxford over in England. And at the end of that time, I was broke and I needed a job. And I wrote to everybody I could think of who might be able to give me a lead on a job. One of the very few people who wrote back was an American journalist, very famous at the time, long gone now, but famous at the time, called William F. Buckley Jr. And I have to tell you the story because the only way this is comprehensible is as a story. And Bill Buckley said, you like writing and you like politics. This is 1982. You ought to go to Washington and become a speechwriter. And why don't you get in touch with my son, Christopher? Christopher Buckley was then writing speeches for vice president, as he was then, George H.W. Bush. And I presented myself to Christopher Buckley in the summer of 1982. Totally unbeknownst to me, Christopher had put in his notice and was planning to leave in just two weeks. And his replacement, who'd been lined up for some time, had just fallen through. So the vice president's office needed a speechwriter in a hurry, and I walked in the door. And that's how I got a job in the White House. About two years after that, there were a couple of openings on President Reagan's speechwriting staff, and I was already in the building. I was familiar with the president's policies because I'd been working with the vice president. So the president's staff hired me. But I got in on a fluke, and that is the way politics works. Okay. A couple of follow-up questions. I want to, I want to ask you about this because ever since I've been down here in, in Australia, there's quite a lot of confusion of the American higher education system in college and university because down here right. college means high school. And one of the right. things that I've noticed from a, a lot of people who, um, you know, go on to, to get degrees and masters is that they bounce around through a few different schools. You know, they might start in the U.S., end up at like Balliol College in Oxford or Cambridge yes, before moving yes. back over to the, the U.S. So briefly, could you just explain for a lot of our listeners college and university in the U.S. and right. sort of hopping around between these places? Sure. In this country, college typically refers to a smaller institution, ordinarily an institution that's dedicated entirely to undergraduate education, whereas university implies a bigger institution, and in particular, an institution with graduate schools. But there's no hard and fast. Dartmouth College is still called Dartmouth College because it chooses to emphasize that it's a small institution and that its great emphasis is on undergraduate education. It does, however, have some excellent graduate schools. They're small graduate schools, but it has a graduate school of engineering and Tuck Business School, and there's a medical school associated with Dartmouth as well. So it's not a hard or fast rule. Dartmouth College is called Dartmouth College for reasons of tradition. Even so, it has a greater undergraduate emphasis and and smaller graduate schools than Harvard University or Stanford University. Both educate undergraduates, but Harvard and Stanford and Yale, for example, all call themselves universities, are much bigger institutions and they place greater emphasis on educating graduate students. Right. Okay. Sorry, I I feel like I cut you off. That's no, no, that's no, no. I just that's my that's my attempt to um, unmuddle a muddle. The truth is, though, that it is a bit of a muddle. Some institutions call themselves college for largely historical reasons. And is there any connection? Because it seems quite frequently, as, as I mentioned, that you know they'll go to Oxford before returning to Harvard. Is it just because these are the right. top schools, or is there a particular relationship between um, you know higher education in in these countries? You know, well, it's a long time ago now, but when I went to 
Oxford, there was an informal, I'm sure it no longer exists because things have become regularized and, and sort of old boy relationships are no longer favored at Oxford. But when I went to Oxford all those years ago, there was an informal relationship between Dartmouth College, my undergraduate institution here, and Christchurch, Oxford, which was the college I attended at Oxford. Now, college means something different yet again in Oxford, but there was an informal relationship so that when I applied to Christchurch, they smiled upon me. They liked having a Dartmouth man in attendance about one at a time. They didn't love us, but they did put up with typically one Dartmouth man at a time. But this was a, this is a this world has disappeared. In those days, Christchurch was still an all male institution. That was a long time ago. Right. Okay. Excellent. So, I guess uh, an, an interesting place. You know, you, you've given us a little bit of background about how how you end up in the White House. Let's talk a, a little bit about your journey there, because obviously these are both Republican presidents. You know, we're going back. What is it? What is this about thirty years ago now? So, uh, were you involved in? Uh, would, would it have been Republican politics or conservative politics or small government politics at the time? Because these seem seem to be intersecting groups now in in modern day politics. Yes, that's right. You mean what was it that got me to the White House or got me uh, the attention of Bill Buckley and his son Christopher? In my case, you make a very good point. I should I should grant most of the people who get to a White House do so because they are they campaign with or on behalf of the man who gets elected man or woman these days it hasn't happened but it may at any moment becomes elected president i got in in a different way i was very young i was still only 25 when i joined the white house staff and what got me in was student journalism i had done a lot of writing when i and a lot of writing on politics when i was an undergraduate at dartmouth and then i had continued writing when i was at oxford so as I say, it was an American journalist, William F. Buckley, who recommended me to his son, Christopher, who was also a writer. And I got in just because the vice president's office needed somebody who could handle prose and needed him in a hurry. And there I was. Hmm. What's going on at that time? I believe I watched a speech with you. I'm just referring to my notes in from mm-hmm. from the call. I believe I think originally the, the speech was going to be written for H.W. before being passed on to Reagan or something along those lines? Oh, I, I you may be referring to one of the more embarrassing incidents from my uh, then young life. I joined the, the vice president's staff in the summer of 1982 and worked on his staff for about 18, 14 to 18 months. I can't remember quite what it was, a little less than two years before these openings occurred on the president's staff. But before the president's staff hired me, they wanted to test me out for a couple of weeks. So there was a couple of weeks when I was writing for both the vice president and the president. And that was a lot of work. So there was one. I'm very embarrassed even all these years later to admit this. But there was one speech that I wrote for the vice president. And I thought it was pretty good. And I just used the material for the president and my I felt totally safe in doing that because the vice president's press was always very low. He would sp- if he spoke in Arkansas, he'd get press in Arkansas, but nowhere else. He, he would generate local press, whereas the president would generate national press, national attention. So I used the same material in the president's speech. And then on the day that I stood in the hallway, the cross hallway in the White House to listen to the president deliver the remarks 
At the other end of the hallway, the elevator door opened. Secret Service man got out. The president got out. And then to my horror, the vice president got out just behind the president. And they walked past me into the East Room. I wasn't counting on the vice president's being in attendance. They walked past me, and the vice president spotted me and winked at me. So he knew I was there. And then they go in, and the president begins delivering the remarks. And when he got to the passage that the vice president had delivered just a couple of days before, because the vice president was smiling and seemed to be enjoying himself listening to the president's remarks, and then the smile disappeared from his face. And his eyes darted around the room and came to rest on me. And I got a very, it was a momentary anger, but I got a very angry glare from George H.W. Bush. A week later, I took my leave of him because I had gotten hired on the president's staff. And he was a, he was one of the nicest men I have ever known. He was gracious. He said, we've enjoyed having you here. And if there's anything I can ever do for you, let me know, stay in touch. And then there was a momentary pause, and then he looked at me and said, by the way, did I um, did I hear material of mine in the president's <laughs> remarks? And I winced, and he just looked at me and said, just, just make sure that that doesn't happen again. No, sir, it won't happen again. That was the end of that. Let's talk about the, the contrasting uh, personalities and I guess the, their role in American history these days. Um, H.W. only lasted one term. Correct. And, um, again, during his presidency, I probably would have been about 10. And I'm, I'm not American, so I'm sort of an outsider looking in. And uh, I distinctly remember his big phrase was, read my lips, no new taxes, which I, I believe yes, ended up being right. a lie in what ended up getting kicked out. He, for lack of a better term, he's sort of fallen by the wayside in, in Republican history in comparison to Ronald Reagan, who is now who's now effectively a, a demigod still for, for the conservative movement um, and, and beloved. So take us through your experiences w- with both yeah. of, and I guess the perception of uh, the, the these, polar opposites between the two, really. Yes, yes. They, they were – these two men are still – I don't think it'll – half a century from now, I'll be gone, but you'll still be around, Jesse. Half a century from now, this will no longer be true, but it is still the case – to a large extent, that they're on a reputational seesaw. When one is up, the other is down. Reagan was, in the 80s, Reagan was, Reagan was the dominant figure by far. Reagan was the man who, Reagan was the more aggressive politically. He wanted, Reagan was a man who would, who was never satisfied with the status quo. And George H.W. Bush tended to be more comfortable with things as they were. Reagan loved giving speeches. Reagan viewed giving speeches as the central act of governance. That was how he was president. Uh, holding meetings, going around to, to members of Congress. He would do that when his staff asked him to. But to him, that was the, that was the price you had to pay for the central act of governance, which was moving the American people, explaining yourself to the American people. With George H.W. Bush, it was the other way around. He was never very comfortable with speeches. He didn't actually like giving them terribly much. And for him, holding policy meetings, reading briefing books, lobbying members of Congress, that was how you governed. So these men, one was more deeply, they're both conservative, but one was more deeply energetically, vigorously conservative. The other was more, Reagan was more, Reagan had thought things through and read more deeply in politics and ideology. 
he had conservative convictions. George H.W. Bush had a conservative temperament. Reagan, <laughs> Reagan loved to speak. George H.W. Bush didn't care to speak that as much, didn't like speeches as much. And my view is that this is that we had those men in place when we had them and that they were in president in the order in which they were president is further evidence of Bismarck's famous dictum that God loves drunks, sailors and the United States of America, because <laughs> Reagan was just right for that moment. Reagan was Reagan pushed, implied all kinds of pressures on the Soviet Union and broke it, caused it to, you could say it tumbled in on itself. But even at that, it, it was at least in large measure because of external pressures that Reagan helped by Thatcher and others, but that Reagan applied. George Bush would have been more hesitant to do that sort of thing. He would, for example, I would never have written Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall for George Bush. For Reagan, yes. George Bush, though, as the Soviet Union is coming unglued, there's the, the, the revolutions sweeping Eastern Europe, the Soviet Union itself collapses. George Bush is the kind of steadying hand who helps to hold things together during that phase. So they had different personalities, different strengths and weaknesses. You said a moment ago that Reagan is the dominant figure historically. That, had, that was true for a long time. Uh, of course, President Bush just died last year. During his funeral, I had a feeling there was a kind of reassessing, reassessment going on in this country. His reputation um, rose quite a lot, I felt, during that period. Sort of diplomacy versus brinkmanship, almost, if you will. Um, change versus status quo, conviction versus temperament. Let's shake things up. Let's, 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 let's shake, rattle and roll versus no, wait a moment. Let's think twice. Uh, action versus prudence. This is the, uh, what would it be? This is, I had, uh, this is in my, I had a couple of friends come over. Yeah, they were, they were complementary figures, right? They were contrasting figures, but they were complementary figures. They enjoyed each other's company quite a lot, appreciated each other. At the same time, there was a certain – they had competed in politics. I think the way to, the way to think of them is con contrasting but still complementary figures, I think. So like a, a cop buddy film, if you will, buddy cop film. <laughs> yes, 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 something like that, something um, like that. One of the interesting things that I heard is, is I had read somewhere or one of the analysis of Reagan was that he actually didn't have a lot of friends – he was very well liked um, and had a lot yes. of acquaintances, but yes. many people said that that you probably couldn't list any of his good friends. Well, you know, again, it, th this is a really interesting chance for me to ask sort of all these historical questions. What were sort of sure. your your insights uh, onto him uh, as a person? Then, uh, he was a complicated man. He was he was so genial and so warm and so attentive to others. You'd go into the Oval Office and he had a kind of preternatural sense for anyone in the in a group who might have been ill at ease, nervous in the presence of a president. I certainly was my first couple of times in the Oval Office. So he, he would always tell a joke. He would always look from face to face and put people at ease. In fact, it was so often the case that um, people felt at ease with Ronald Reagan, that his... Um, 
his principal aide, a, a fellow called Jim Kuhn, it was just routine for him. He would have to go into the Oval Office to break meetings up because people got so comfortable, <laughs> they would forget how, how tightly scheduled a chief executive was. At the same time, it is very true that there was a kind of ultimate remoteness about Reagan. I heard from a number of sources who knew him in the old days that he had one very close friend in Hollywood, an actor called Robert Taylor. In my experience, in the administration, people who worked with him and were in Washington during the 1980s, I could see only one person whom I would really have considered a friend of Ronald Reagan's, and that was a man who was uh, briefly the national security advisor, a man called Judge Clark, Bill Clark. And Ronald Reagan lived over 90 years. I'm only aware of two close friends that he had. George Bush, by contrast, or, and he and Mrs. Reagan, that marriage was extremely tight. They were a unit, and they were a self-sufficient unit. When they went off to Camp David on weekends, it was the two of them. When they went to the ranch in August, it was the two of them. By contrast with George Bush and his wife Barbara, where it was a big, close-knit family, people were in and out of the White House all the time, just as people were in and out of their big house up in Maine, Kenny Bunkport, Maine. George Bush, I last saw him, this would, I guess, be about three years ago. He was in a wheelchair. Uh, he was a very old man. He had trouble speaking. He had to take a deep breath before he could speak. But still, he saw me and his eyes twinkled and he said, hi, Pete. <laughs> and, we, and off we He knew people, remembered people, had deep friendships, lots and lots of friendships. Again, just completely contrasting figures. His first a friend of mine, there was a, a there is a fellow called Ray Siller, very good friend of mine, hilarious man, who was a professional comedy writer. He would do. I don't. You're too young, but there was a show for years in this country called The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. I know that yeah. very well. Yeah, and then okay. moved on to Leno. And Ray, and, yeah, that's exactly right. And Ray Siller was Johnny Carson's chief writer. And Ray uh, volunteered jokes for George H.W. Bush. When I was his speechwriter, we would get on the phone and say, Ray, here's the speech. Can you give us a few jokes? And he would fax in a dozen jokes. Two or three of them might work just beautifully. Others not so. But that was the way he was a professional. He'd fax in a bunch of jokes. And he and vice president, as he was then, George H.W. Bush, became such good friends that Ray was one of half a dozen people who stayed in the White House upstairs residence the first weekend after George H.W. Bush became president. The Reagans almost never had people stay upstairs. As Again, they were sufficient unto themselves. But the Bushes, there were people staying with them all the time, family, cousins, friends. It was a... Um, it was, in, in all kinds of funny ways, the White House behave, became a kind of beach house under the bushes. It was just always full of people. Um, what are the factors then? H.W. Uh, only got uh, a single term and yes. uh, Clinton came in after him. What are your sort of uh, perceptions of, I guess, his, his rolling out of the presidency? What, what were the factors or was it the cult of personality of Clinton the way that we that we saw with Trump a few years ago. Well, there were a number of factors. You're asking essentially why George Bush lost, right, in, in 1992. And 
first of all, for him to have carried another term, you had Reagan for two terms and then Bush for a term. That was three terms held by one party, the Republican Party. A fourth term would have been politically extremely difficult. The last time the Democrats had held on to the White House through four terms was during the, pres- the, un- the presidency of uh, Franklin Roosevelt before we had an amendment that limited presidents to two terms. So it would have been politically uphill for a Republican to hold the White House yet again. The economy had slid sideways. The economy was not in terribly good shape. It had begun to recover somewhat by the election day, but people had in mind that we were in a recession. (laughs) And then what tends to get overlooked is that George H.W. Bush was not in very good health. He had, by that point, in his presidency developed Graves' disease, a thyroid disorder, and the physicians were monkeying around with different doses to help control this problem, but he didn't have the energy that he had. So Clinton portrayed him successfully as somebody who'd been around, truthfully, I should say, as somebody who'd been in politics at the highest levels for a dozen years already, as an older man, as a man who had presided over a big recession, and Clinton was not as um, blunt as Donald Trump was later with Jeb Bush. Donald Trump referred to, began referring to Jeb Bush as low-energy Jeb. Yes. But, but Trump, uh, but I beg your pardon, Bill Clinton very dramatically contrasted his own youthful energy with Bush's... There were times during the campaign when it was almost a kind of lassitude but it, and, and it had a medical, he, he actually was suffering a medical problem. So he put all those factors together and it was, excuse me, and I'm leaving out the most obvious factor of all, which was the third party candidacy of Ross Perot. I was going to ask about that. I, I'm glad yeah. we segued into that because he's on my notes and, and while you were just speaking, I've just looked them up on Wikipedia only to find out that he passed only a month ago. Uh, exactly right. Exactly uh, right. Which is very surprising. And again, um, I need to ask this question because I was a little bit too young for this, but Ross Perot also became this sort of pop media icon who was running as an independent. And yes. that's, that's very odd to see out of, first of all, out of the American system. But from what I can gather, he was considered quite a threat or a legitimate third candidate. Where, where did his, um, oh, he was. where, where did no his doubt. steam yes. come from at the time? Well, again, he was a very energetic, he talked like a Texan. He was picturesque. He was, to use an old-fashioned journalistic term, Ross Perot was terrific copy. He sold newspapers. He got ratings on television. So the press liked him because he was a colorful story that just sold. In political terms, Perot comes along and begins hammering Bush on the deficit which was a kind of third or fourth order political concern. But we've now been in a period, by the time Perot comes along, we've been in a period where there's been about a dozen years of economic growth. And it's in time, when the economy is bad, the economy is always the top issue. But when the economy is good and has been good for a decade, as it, over a decade as it had been by then, people begin wondering about other issues. And the deficit rose as a national concern. And then on top of that, again, you've got this feeling that Bush is kind of old. He's a little bit – now, he's no older than Ross Perot. They're about the yeah, same age. Yeah, I was going to say quite he old feels, still. He then. feels tired by comparison with Perot's sense of energy and verve and vigor. 
And then a final point, Perot has a populist feel about him. Although he was an immensely rich man, he was a self-made man. And he sounded like a plucky, ordinary, common man of the people, whereas George H.W. Bush always had the problem throughout his political career that he seemed to many people like a patrician, mm. like a man from the old upper classes. And the reason for that, of course, is that he was a patrician and he was a man from the old upper classes. He'd been raised in, in wealth in Greenwich and uh, although he'd lived in Texas for years and years, he still felt to many people, looked red, sounded like uh, an East Coast um, elite. What was the perception that that you had in the political sphere? What 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 sort of threat was Ross Perot considered at the time? Oh, he was considered a very serious threat, and indeed, he did in George H. W. Bush. Ross Perot received nineteen percent of the vote. That is a huge portion of the vote for a third party out of nowhere independent candidate to receive in this country. Virtually unprecedented, not quite unprecedented, but you have to go back to the uh, to when Theodore Roosevelt ran as a third party campaign way back in the first decade of the century. Yes, yes. He ran. He uh, Taft was the Republican nominee and indeed wrote a. Teddy Roosevelt had named Taft, his chosen Taft as his successor. Then Roosevelt decided he'd retired from politics too soon, wanted the Republican nomination back. Taft wouldn't give it to him. And so Theodore Roosevelt ran as an independent and he and Taft split the Republican vote and ended up electing Woodrow Wilson in much the same way that Ross Perot and George H.W. Bush split the conservative or Republican, I beg your pardon, split the, I guess, broadly speaking, conservative vote and ended up electing Bill Clinton. What, we're starting to get more into... Uh, so that happens once a century, it seems. Yeah. Uh, we'll start moving on to the modern stuff, but we're really sk- skipping over um, the, the most dramatic part, which is the fact that, that you wrote this speech and you're you know, sitting, uh, working within... You know the 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 whole of politics of where this is happening during the fall of the USSR. You're working on this speech. Reagan delivers it, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Around this time, Gorbachev is still talking about ideas like glasnost and perestroika. Yes. But yes. we're really from from what I've read and what I can gather. There's really no idea at this point in time that communism is going to fall. It happened so. Abruptly, what is that? What's the intel that's happening within the White House of dialogue with the communists? What this is supposed to achieve? The relationship with Gorbachev and what sort of and, and the you know what the the immediate fall and then how the White House preps for the East in transition out of this without any sort of formal government or structure after that. You're supposing the White House was a much more organized <laughs> place than it really was. So in brief, during the Reagan years, you've got Brezhnev, who's playing the old game of standing up to this, the United States and pushing and pushing and pushing, trying to expand in Africa, Latin America, and so forth. Brezhnev dies. Then comes Andropov, another hardliner. He dies. Then comes Chernenko. As far as anybody knows, another hardliner, although he's not in office long enough for us to institute many policies, because then he dies. And then in March of 1985, 
This is already Ronald Reagan's second term. A man still in his 50s, by far the youngest leader of the Soviet Union, is chosen by the Politburo, and that's Mikhail Gorbachev. And Gorbachev first tries to play the same old game, pushing the United States. This is complicated, but in brief, he and Reagan meet. They have a summit. Their second summit takes place at Reykjavik. And Gorbachev, this is something, this is something new. Gorbachev offers all kinds of dramatic cuts in nuclear weapons. This is day one of two. And Reagan likes everything he hears. And then on day two, Gorbachev says, oh, by the way, we'll have all those dramatic cuts in nuclear weapons, but there's just one little condition. You and the United States need to agree to drop or at least very severely curtail your research program into the Strategic Defense Initiative, or Star Wars, as everybody ended up calling it. And and this, of course, was the idea that we would develop actual defenses that could take out incoming nuclear missiles before they struck. And Reagan, whose position was, first of all, we were only beginning the research, who knew what we would discover? But Reagan's position had long been that if the United States discovered technology that could defend it against incoming nuclear missiles, it would share that technology with the Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union would be just as defended against our missiles as we would be against theirs. Reagan, there's this strain in Reagan, which really is very anti-nuclear, notwithstanding that he was portrayed, falsely portrayed as some kind of warmonger, nuclear madman. All that was nonsense. So Reagan says no. And there's no agreement at Reykjavik. And what happened there was that Gorbachev essentially makes one last effort to play the old game, which is to say, we have nukes, you have nukes. We have conventional forces, you have conventional forces. Limiting the game to places where, or areas of contention where the Soviets could match us or at least counterbalance us. And by insisting on the strategic defense initiative, Reagan says, in effect, no. I am going to bring to bear on the Soviet Union the economic and technical dynamism of the United States. It's a new game. I'm bringing to bear on you pressures that the Soviet Union cannot match. And that moment changes things. Gorbachev goes back to the Soviet Union. He's able to say even to the hardliners, he's able to say this, they don't take it well. We know eventually there's going to be a coup attempt against him. But he's able to say to the hardliners, the old game is up. We have to try something new. And then he begins talking about Glasnost and Perestroika attempts to open the Soviet system enough to begin some kind of economic growth. And it's in that context, there's no answer, there's no official American answer or response to Glasnost and Perestroika until President Reagan goes to the Berlin Wall. And essentially what he says at the Berlin Wall is, you can't do half measures. If you want liberalization, you need to tear down this wall. And so he's he sort of, Gorbachev is already moving in, in broadly speaking, the right direction. And Reagan, Reagan ups the ante yet again. So that really that's, becomes that's, the first goalpost or the first 
if you will, it's the first concrete measure, I guess, in this process of being it's being forced by the West. It's it's at the same time, though, Jesse, this is important. Ronald Ray, I, who wrote the speech, I can, of course, I'm an authority on what I was thinking. I know what I was thinking. Never crossed my mind that that wall would come down. What was it? 14 or 15 months later, November 1989, I guess closer to two years later. And President Reagan later said he was out of office when the wall came down. He said it never, he never expected to come down as, as when it would. So I beg your pardon. He never expected it to come down when it did. So in saying tear down this wall, my idea in writing the speech, and it had to be something like this, what was in the president's mind in delivering that speech was pushing them to, to the logical, the logical limits or the logical outcome of perestroika and glasnost. You can't do half measures with human freedom and economic liberty. Once you start, you're going to have to tear down this wall. But I thought it might take 20 years for the Soviets to get around to mm. opening up to that extent. That it all happened as quickly as it did took, I found that just breathtaking. I have to confess, I had no idea that it would all, that that wall would be gone less than two years later. <laughs> and, and what about the two of them? Because the, the relationship you see becomes quite amicable where they, they seem to actually become friends in a lot of these press conferences and, and, and public meetings. What's, what's happening between them where they, they find some common ground? You know, at the time when we were in the White House, I was a little <laughs> worried. We speechwriters who were in all kinds of ways the true believers in the White House we were surrounded by people at the State Department, National Security Council, who tried to stop that speech, by the way. Right. Um, but I thought, oh, my goodness, the president is going a little soft on communism here. He, <laughs> he likes Gorbachev too much. Gorbachev, Gorbachev is the inherit, the successor of Stalin. Don't, don't like this. Okay. And then about 10 years later, I had the chance to meet Gorbachev and chat with him. And I saw immediately what Ronald Reagan responded to in Gorbachev. Gorbachev was a very skillful politician, meaning he, what he put people, he was, this is, this will sound a very strange thing to say, but he was in a number of ways like Ronald Reagan himself. I had my wife with me. The very first thing Gorbachev did was flirt a little bit with my wife. So good to meet you. How, what a pleasure to meet you. Oh, you have children. How many children? Oh, you don't look like someone who has so many children. All of this taking place through a translator, of course. But I thought to myself, ah, all those years earlier, if Reagan, I beg your pardon, if Gorbachev flirted a little bit with Mrs. Reagan, Ronald Reagan would have loved that. He loved <laughs> having his wife appreciated. And then he started chatting with me. And he was full of good humor. I really felt as though I was making a now, maybe it was illusory, I don't know, but I really felt as though there was a there was a genuine human connection there. And that Gorbachev was the only big time commie I ever met. But I am told by people who dealt with uh Chernyenko, Andropov, Brezhnev certainly, Kosygin, that these people were it, that there was a kind of deadness about them, mm. that they that you really just couldn't reach them. And Gorbachev was not like that. He was authentically human. Once this all sort of happens, the 
So, so from what I remember, there's sort of two parts to this. So one of the things we went to, we did a holiday in Romania a few years ago when we were still living oh, in, did you in, really? in the UK. Yeah, we did. It was, it's actually it's a very interesting place. You hop on the roads. You know, we've we've got a driver taking us around in a Merc to see all these spots. And as you're driving, people are still on horse and cart. People are trying to, yes, um, yes. you know, sticking their thumb out and are trying to get lifts into the city to go sell their um, their their agriculture. Still a, a really different spot. But we went to. Um, uh, we went to the downtown core where Ceausescu had done the speech at the fall of communism at the time. And again, when I look back, it's odd to me because um, Romania is by no means sort of a, a powerful country in any respect. Right, right. But when I talk to people about being over there, everyone remembers the fall of communism during this speech and Ceausescu, who was just a satellite state of the USSR. Why was Romania remembered at this time? Was it just because you were watching the televised fall of a leader at the time? Because Romania, it just, it seems like such an odd place to, and an odd person to encapsulate the minds of people historically. Well, my guess, my guess about that is that Ceausescu was so brutal that, and frankly, because the country was so poor that there wasn't, there was nothing gradual about what took place in Romania. In Czechoslovakia, you had a dissident movement, by contrast. Václav Havel, who had been a protester in the Prague Spring of 68, the Soviet tanks rolled in. Yes, they did. But still, there was at least an underground dissident movement. People who knew each other, those who were not members of the dissident movement, were aware of the dissident movement. You had the feeling that when the time was right, there were already people in place to help bring change about. And in Romania, nothing changed until in the course of 24 hours, everything changed. So you have Nicolae Ceausescu on the balcony in Bucharest, addressing a crowd of tens of thousands, maybe not tens of thousands, but many thousands. And he begins, this, the television here is indelible, the images are just indelible, I can remember it all myself. He begins speaking to the crowd, totally self-confident that he is in command as he has been for what over 20 years. Mm. And he's just speaking to them as if he's laying down the law. This is the way it's going to be. And the crowd begins to hiss and you can see from his face, not only has he ever never been subjected to that before, he has never imagined such a reaction before. And within 24 hours, he, who began that speech in command, escapes by helicopter, by helicopter, and then He's they're captured found. and yeah. then they're executed. They're yes. at, within 24 hours later, the man is dead. So in and his wife, they're shot quite brutally. But uh, I, I believe the argument was they had to be shot because the the communist security forces were still on the loose in Bucharest. And if Ceausescu were still alive. They might attempt a kind of counter coup anyway. But the suddenness with which it all took place in Romania is, I think, what makes it so indelible, so memorable to people. And the other thing, of course, is Ceausescu actually had a personality. He really had played up the cult of personality. I can't remember. I suppose I could look it up and maybe at two in the morning I'd pop awake and the name would under my head. I can't remember <laughs> who was running Czechoslovakia at the time of the revolution. I can't, Eric Honecker had been running East Germany, but then they kicked him out and put in some other, I, 
But Ceausescu was the man who had been running Romania for over, what well, I can't remember now, but something like a couple of decades. And so this would have been, I, I assume then, sort of the only thing like that to happen at the time. Is that, is that why it had such an impact? Because yes, it was so, yes, so yes, out of the blue? Yes. Okay. Everything else took place pretty peacefully when it all happened. What, pretty peacefully. And what do you remember about the fall then? So, um, you know, because even, even I remember when I had to study this going through school, the story of the USSR just sort of in in the studies because I, I didn't study it further, but you know in in education in 1991, I remember that was just sort of the end of the lesson. It was like and then yes, the yes. US the US the USSR um, yes. fell apart, and then there was no sort of post discussion about um, you know this sort of unruly land which is now as we've seen it gets taken over by the KGB. You know how um, how wealth becomes well, well. First of all, military assets are sold off, creating these sort of billionaires right. who then get into into oil. What do you remember about this time, and, and I guess the the flow on of, of how you view Russia as a country now? Well, at the time of the fall of the wall, so toward the end of the Reagan administration, just a couple of months before the whole administration ended, I left the White House and traveled all the way across the country to California to attend Stanford Business School. So I was in business school when the wall fell <laughs> and it just, I was trying to cram for examinations as the wall, I can remember turning on the television to catch the news, suddenly seeing this. And I was in the same position as most Americans, I think, probably most Canadians and Australians. I just could hardly believe it. It was such a staggering event. It had happened so quickly. And I can remember watching, as, as we all did, for something like three days as people flood from East Berlin through the checkpoints into West Berlin. And then the next phase, students are hauling themselves on top of the wall and popping bottles of champagne. And then by about the third day, they were taking sledgehammers to the wall and starting to smash the thing down themselves. And as I mentioned earlier, I, had, I did not expect it to happen anything like that quickly. And there it all was taking place. Okay, so th so that that's the the suddenness with which it all happened. And Ronald Reagan himself, you know, there was a long period when he had Alzheimer's. I wasn't able to ask him, or I didn't ask him. I suppose I could have if I'd been quicker about it, but I was in business school, as I said. But I later asked Mrs. Reagan his reaction when the wall came down, and he was particularly pleased. He said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall as if it was up to the Russians to take the wall down. And it was in a certain sense, it could only have come down if they permitted it to, but he was quite pleased that it was Germans themselves. It wasn't the decision of some high potentate. It was ordinary German people who forced the East German government to essentially give up on the wall. So that was something that, that meant a great deal to Ronald Reagan. Mrs. Reagan said to me on Russia, Russia's Russia. It's a country that has a lot of trouble catching a break and a lot of trouble instituting anything like genuine democracy. All of that said, Vladimir Putin has some kind of strange mix of nationalism. It seems to be an increasingly brutal regime. It's repugnant in all kinds of ways. But they're not communists. They don't have an ideology which formally commits them to subverting governments around the world and to working for a worldwide revolution. All of that sounds old-fashioned now, and thank goodness. But until the day the Soviet Union collapsed, 
and went officially out of existence in December of 1991, it remained formally committed to a communist, worldwide communist revolution. It remained the duty of the formal duty. Gorbachev gave up on it, but it remained the, it was part of the written documents of that country that it would subvert other nations until communism had triumphed everywhere. That kind of craziness is not part of Russia today. At least for that much, we can all be grateful. You're, you're taking a really good segue there because there's probably not much more to say uh, about Russia in that respect, but it does take us back to sort of uh, uh, Reagan's presidency. So when we talk about um, Putin and, and, and dictatorship, U.S. foreign policy around this time is, is really very interesting. And those that among the Reagan and Republican detractors, there's a number of things going on at this time that provides mm-hmm. them with ammunition. What I want to ask you about is, again, because this is, this is things that I've only read about and haven't delved in too far about, but I can understand their points. When we, U.S. foreign policy around this time during the Cold War begins to back brutal dictators as long as they side we'd against back the brutal dictators. We'd back, we'd back brutal dictators for a long time. And it's not Reagan. Who's, it's, that's nothing new under Reagan. But go ahead. Go ahead and, and make then the point. Within there, oh. we, we've also got the Iran-Contra affair. We've got key mm-hmm. personalities who come out of this like Oliver North. Uh, at the same time, we're promoting a war on drugs. This is just broadly speaking, it's it's a convoluted mess. And I'm not here again, as you said, to debate you. But the the people Feel against Reagan who who talk about this, I think they they have some valid points. But again, all this stuff is happening when I'm at the age of like seven or eight. So it's it's um, you know a Wikipedia page gives you the information, but it, it these things never explore the context of of when when and why these things are happening. So what? Give me what you want me to start on, Justin. Well, where do we start then? So uh, I guess, well, we can talk. You've already sort of talked about um, the role of U.S. in, in backing dictators. I guess it's more of a, a larger geopolitics so, talk. But then I want to understand yeah. more about Reagan and, and the geopolitics around uh, Iran Contra uh, drugs. How Oliver North plays into all of this. Sure, the Jean Kirkpatrick, probably forgotten largely forgotten now, but she was a major figure. She was Ronald Reagan's ambassador to the United Nations. She, although a Democrat, Reagan appointed her. She wrote an important article in the late 70s, maybe, that drew, I can't remember the date, but that drew a distinction between communist regimes and authoritarian regimes. And that distinction struck me, still strikes me as valid. You'd rather not have to live under either, but if you had a choice, if you were forced to choose, you'd take the authoritarian regime, such as, for example, the regime of Francisco Franco for 30-some years in Spain. You could enter and leave Spain when you wanted to. You could start a business. You could get the kind of education you wanted. There was censorship. You were not allowed to speak against the dictator. Essentially, what Franco did was rule a large area of political life out of bounds. But short of that, there was still substantial freedom. By contrast with the communist world where you couldn't leave, you couldn't start a business, the state can, the, the totalitarian claim to your very being, to the thoughts that you thought, that it's called totalitarian because the claim to the human life was total. And 
of course, in uh, foreign policy is a, one aspect of dealing with reality. And for four and a half decades, the overriding aim of American foreign policy was to contain the Soviet Union. And we had to work with some unsavory authoritarian characters when we did so. From Harry Truman, a Democrat, all the way through Republicans and Democrats, there were plenty of bad guys with whom we found ourselves forced to make common cause. Here's a distinction, though, that Reagan supported the democracy whenever he could support democracy over an authoritarian regime, he did. He backed Corazon Aquino in the Philippines in her effort, her ultimately successful effort, to overthrow the regime of Ferdinand Marcos. He was, uh, this is complicated because it's a number of countries and there was a bloody history going on, but he helped move the countries of Central Central America in the direction of democracy. Did he work with authoritarian regimes? He did, because the aim was to contain and ultimately defeat Soviet communism. But where he could, it was clear that his his ultimate value was democracy. And where he could, as in, for example, I just mentioned the Philippines, he helped democratic forces as against authoritarian forces. So that's that one. Now, what what Iran Contra? This is this <laughs> Jesse. You, you ask me a bunch of questions, and you're going to get a, two or three little lectures here in a row. That's one of them done. Iran-Contra is two pieces. One is Reagan's decision to sell missiles using a third party, arm's length transaction, to what he hoped were moderate forces in Iran. And he did so at least in large part because the idea was that those forces in Iran would use their influence to help free several people, several Americans who were being held hostage. There's no doubt that Ronald Reagan did indeed specifically consider that. I, Ed, Edwin Meese, the attorney general at the time, described the meeting in the Oval Office. It's well documented. He was responsible for making the decision. He refused. He, it was characterized as arms for hostages. And the president, in his own mind, believed that the transaction was distant enough it was a third-party transaction, essentially, that he was not engaging in a direct deal of arms for hostages. Nevertheless, in my judgment, in the judgment of nearly everybody afterwards, for sure, he made a mistake. But it was only a mistake, and it wasn't criminal, and it wasn't um, and it wasn't made out of goodwill, out of ill will. It was made out of very goodwill. He was trying to find some opening for dealing with Iran and trying to free some American hostages. The other bit is that the proceeds of that sale were channeled to pro-American forces in Central America through the National Security Council official Oliver North. And that was pretty clearly illegal. It was certainly ill-judged, and Ronald Reagan knew nothing about it. So that's Iran, and and that's not just me talking. There was a special counsel put in place who spent millions of dollars investigating and concluded that the president honestly had no knowledge of it at all. So those are the two pieces of Iran Contra, and then the war on drugs. Oh, the war on drugs is pretty simple. The president was simply enforcing the law there. He spent a little more money than his predecessors did, and Mrs. Reagan became famous for 
her anti-drug campaign in which she was famous for the symbol, single phrase, just say no. I remember that. Yes, very yeah. much so. So I think what, 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 what War on Drugs is not a real departure in the Reagan administration. That's been that's still in some ways going on now. Rather, what I mean by that is uh, um, I'm trying to recall this. I remember there was a separate scandal involving something like the, the CSA uh, – sorry, the CIA or FBI actually involved in drug running or something along those lines during the war on oh, drugs. That, to be perfectly honest, I only remember that dimly. That is something I believe that that was never proven. That was kind of a – or is that I, – I, Jesse, I just plain can't remember that. That was certainly nothing to do with President Reagan, though. That was, that's right. There was, there have been allegations through the years that there was a kind of rogue operation run by the CIA where they were running drugs to get money to do some, something. I, I just plain don't remember it, but that was not, nothing that had to do with the Reagan White House. Fair enough. That was through the CIA, as best I can remember. No problem. You had also said, I remember before we did this, I was watching. I should make the point. That may sound very cavalier. <laughs> it does. It's a serious yeah. charge. I just can't remember. But but the federal government of the United States is a vast operation. In the White House itself, I was on the I was in something called the Executive Office of the President, and the Executive Office of the President was the innermost circle, so to speak, in the executive branch of the United States government. And in the that is to say, it was the the people who were supposed to be directly supporting the president himself speechwriters, people who handled his schedule, so forth. And the executive office of the president itself had, when I was there, 800 employees. Wow. Add to that CIA, State Department, so forth. So in any operation as big as that, there are going to be things taking place all the time. And at this remove, I'll, I, I have to admit, I remember the big ones, the ones that ran through the White House that were controversies at the time or about which I wrote speeches. The other stuff is just smaller. I'm sorry to say. Again, that may sound cavalier, but mm. but uh, but that is just the way it is. Moving moving on. So I'm just making some notes as we chat. Um, in in another speech that I had seen, um, you know, Reagan, uh, for lack of a better term, appeared to be quite a simple man. He was very seemed to be very accessible in his speeches. But in a talk that you'd done, you discussed how well-read he was he was he an yes. intellectual or, or what sort of conversations would you have with him and i guess you know what what was his sort of um you know belief systems and, and how that carried on through his presidency he was so one piece of ronald reagan that's important to bear in mind if you want to understand the man is to remember that from the time he talked his way into a job as a radio announcer <laughs> in his early 20s from that moment through the rest of his career, he was always in popular media. He was always addressing himself to ordinary Americans. Radio announcer in the Midwest, it's farmers and working people who are listening to him on the radio. He goes to Hollywood, and he used to, he used to say, they don't want them good, they want them by Thursday, meaning... Mm -hmm. It was a business. We're right. after box office here. We're trying to turn out product that appeals to like, ordinary Americans. And so you get he, he, he reads widely. He writes extensively. We don't have anything like a complete collection of his writings because once he gave a speech, he quite often ripped it up and threw it away. Uh, 
before he became president and people began keeping all the, everything, everything that the president touched with a pen. But as best I could tell, he wrote, he did more original writing than any president since Woodrow Wilson. He wrote constantly. He read widely. He was an intellectual. He was not an intellectual in the sense that he would have felt at home. He would have looked very out of place in the faculty lounge at Yale University, for example, <laughs> yes. right? He's a man from the Midwest. He goes to Hollywood. He's a star. All his tastes are the tastes of ordinary people. He's not a man who's interested in opera. He likes listening to Frank Sinatra. He doesn't know anything about French cuisine. Actually, he did know a fair amount about wine. He doesn't, he doesn't like French cuisine. He likes steak and potatoes. But he is an intellectual in the strict sense of the word that ideas mattered to him. In a funny way, ideas may have mattered to him more than anything else mattered to him. And his, he read and wrote his way. Uh, it's an interesting thing. In 1948, he himself called himself a liberal Democrat, and he campaigned for Harry Truman for president, Democrat, in 1948, an organization called Hollywood for Truman. By 1964, he's campaigning for the conservative Republican, Barry Goldwater. And what happened between 48 and 64 is that Ronald Reagan read and wrote and fought his way to a principled conservative position. And by the way, he's doing that at about the time that Hollywood is moving in the other direction. His friends and the industry that he loved are beginning to move to the left but his own reading and conclusions are moving him to the right. So he, this is what I mean by saying he was an intellectual. Ideas really mattered to him. Moving on from there, again, one of the detracting points from Reagan where we talk about sort of um, – uh, I guess you, you and I would probably be considered, I guess, fairly moderate Republican sort of, sort of small government cost-cutting um, – during campaigns, they always talk about, you know, cutting government, cutting expenditure, reducing the deficit. Right. Some right. of the numbers, and we talked about this off air beforehand, some of the things that I have seen is that Reagan was responsible for blowing up the budget contrary to talking about reducing it. You you immediately jumped on that and said, wait a second. So here's your opportunity mm -hmm. to, mm -hmm. to talk about that. And, and yeah, explain so that you, have to, you have to draw a distinction between spending and the, the deficit. Again, this gets complicated. I hope it gets a little bit complicated. I hope it doesn't get boring. Okay. Reagan, Reagan, when he campaigned, Reagan said, I'm going to reduce the deficit, cut taxes and increase military spending. And his staff produced papers that demonstrated he could just do all three. The numbers worked. But shortly after he took office, the economy went into a recession and the numbers were such that it no longer added up. He was going to have to choose two out of three. And he chose to cut taxes and increase military spending. So over the short term, I'll return to this in a moment. Over the short term, government, the government deficit increased. That said, he did control spending better than any president before or any president, excuse me, any president since Dwight Eisenhower and much better than any president since. If you look at non-military discretionary spending, Ronald Reagan controlled the growth of that throughout his eight years so that it only grew at about a percent a year. He actually did 
a very good job of controlling the spending that he felt he could control. But it was more important to him to stand up to the Soviet Union and to revive the economy than to balance the books. Now, these things in American politics, the psych, you can't always look just at a single presidency. Reagan begins an economic expansion, which goes on with a couple of interruptions for 25 years. It goes, continues from 1983 until 2008, really. But this economic expansion, and he wraps up, not he alone, obviously, but he plays a substantial role in wrapping up the Cold War. And by the time Bill Clinton and George W. Bush come along, we're able to cut military spending, and the economy is so buoyant that for a moment or two, the deficit actually does disappear. In the last months of Clinton and the first months of George W. Bush, the federal government actually runs a surplus. I argue, I insist, that that is, is uh, that we were enjoying the policy, that we were enjoying the effects of the policies that Ronald Reagan had put in place years before. What happened, of course, then was that the definition of a surplus in this country is when the money is coming in so fast that even Congress can't spend it that fast. <laughs> All right, here's here's the follow-up question to that then. because um, Congress learned how to spend it even faster, but so the deficit grew all over again. Go ahead. Um, arguments from both sides always debate the ability of the president and their um, – you know what they're signing into law as its effect. So just just as an example, like Trump today, you know, Trump takes office. Um, you know, we see the economy bolster immediately. The argument comes out that, oh, these are the effects of Obama. This is an Obama thing that happened, and the same thing before. Once we, uh, when the economy went down under Obama, oh, this is remnants of uh, the the W presidency. You know, I mean, what is your opinion? And realistically, do presidents really affect the economy that much? And how? What is the timeline of those effects? Is what I'm asking. The timeline is a very good question. Actually, they're both good questions. The, the, the timeline is a complicated question. The, bit, the, the simple question is, can presidents affect economic growth? And the answer is they can mess it up. <laughs> okay. All right. They can really retard economic growth. This is my judgment. And if, you're re, if listeners want to pursue this, you can, they can look at the work of Milton Friedman, the economist Milton Friedman, the economist Gary Becker, both of them now gone, but both of them colleagues of mine here at the Hoover Institution, where I now work. And their view, and a view to which I myself subscribe, is that if you keep taxes low, as low as you can, and you keep regulations as minimal as you can, and the Federal Reserve in this country, that's the institution responsible for the currency prevents inflation. If you have those three conditions, then you have done what you can to get the government out of the way of the ordinary initiative and enterprise of the American people. No president causes the economy to grow. But Ronald Reagan, and to a lesser extent, we can come to this if you'd like to, Donald Trump, Ronald Reagan put in place the conditions that permitted the economy to grow. Now, presidents can raise taxes and permit regulations to proliferate and contribute to an anti-business mood in the country that retard and all of that retards economic growth, thwarts initiative, and can 
smother the economy like a mattress. In my judgment, that's what Jimmy Carter was doing before Ronald Reagan, and it's what Barack Obama was doing pretty substantially before Donald Trump. I love the way this conversation is moving. We're just sliding through time into all these sort of caveats that I want to explore. There's a, there's a couple of questions from there. So, um, you know, we talked about cutting taxes. So in a moment, we'll talk mm-hmm. about the idea of trickle down economics with what it's termed. But before that, um, again, another area, I'm, I'm an outsider looking in. So I can read about this stuff, but because I'm not in America, I oftentimes miss the context of how this is all going in. You mentioned the Federal Reserve. I'd like right. to talk about Alan Greenspan and Ben sure. Bernanke. And that's because right. over the years I've heard, um, for lack of a better term, they seem to be loved by the left and loathed by the right. So I'd just like you to give the insights. Oh, is in, that so? Okay. Or at least from the outside. And especially with Bernanke, okay. there seems to be a lot of um, sort of a socialist high-tax policies that I've that I've seen him. Uh, talk about. So I, I just want to get your perception because again, I don't know much about that. Well, now you're asking about something that has very little to do with Ronald Reagan because the central moment in assessing Alan Green, you're talking about two men who served as chairman of the Federal Reserve. Alan Greenspan first for a number of years and is generally credited, I believe this would be his overall reputation, he's generally credited with moderate inflation fairly stable uh, currency, which is another way of saying the same thing, moderate inflation, and he presided over fairly steady economic growth. Then, by contrast with Ben Bernanke, who had to deal with the effects of the financial crisis, so the rap against Alan Greenspan is that he missed conditions that he should have addressed and that eventually precipitated the financial crisis of 2008, and the rap against Ben Bernanke is that he overreacted to the financial crisis of 2008. Now, that's the way I'm no monetarist specialist here, but that's the way I generally understand uh, the reputations of the two figures, Alan Greenspan and Ben Bernanke. Ben Bernanke flooded the system with liquidity, which is just what a Milton Friedman would argue you should do in the case of a financial crisis. But the argument would go, he continued to flood. We had the famous phrase here is QE, quantitative easing. That means flooding the system. Printing money, effectively. Printing money, printing money. We had QE1, and then we had QE2, and then we had QE3. And among more or less free market conservatives, Everybody agrees QE2, QE1 was necessary. Opinion is divided on QE2, and there's a tendency to suppose that QE3 was too much. Sorry, I. So, but I have to say, my I'm, I'm doing my the best I can to describe <laughs> what I understand is the reputations of these two. I'm no specialist. I don't actually have a firm judgment on this. And I'm showing my lack of knowledge on this because I'm actually confusing Ben Bernanke with Paul Krugman. Krugman's the one that I. Oh, that Krugman, I is column, Kruger, Krugman is Krugman is a journalist. Now. Yes, but I see he, he, he comments on, on monetary policy a lot, and I've mistaken him all for, the time. And it's always very, um, uh, very socialist, high tax base. If I'm yes, yes. Well, a good opening position when you open a newspaper and see Paul Krugman is good opening position to to suppose that he's wrong. <laughs> okay, fair enough. If, if, just on average, you're going to be best off supposing that he's wrong. He's just he's. 
anyway, okay. So, I occasionally has a point to make. And way, way back when he was a young man, I'm told by economists, the work for which he won his Nobel Prize, quite technical work, was cutting-edge work in the field at that time. But mm. as one friend of mine who is a very uh, accomplished economist put it, Paul Krugman is now a journalist who what, who is a former economist. Former economist, okay. Um, Trickle-down economics. This is probably not the term that advocates of it want to use, but this, uh, again, for – from my understanding, we sort of originally the Reagan tax cuts. The detractors of it say all you're doing is cutting out extreme. You're minimizing the tax on the wealthy predominantly mm-hmm. because they are the the key beneficiaries of these, while barely reducing the tax on the lower income. And what it really ends up hurting is government coffers to reduce to be able to fund public services. Mm-hmm. I understand that argument, but at the same time, $200 means a lot more to a lower income person than it does to middle or higher income. Um, again, I just, I just want to hear your argument on the, the benefits of this and why this matters in practice. Right. The term trickle down, which as far as I can recall, was first used by David Stockman, who was Ronald Reagan's director of the office of management and budget. And, he shouldn't have used it probably because it's so easily caricatured. But the, the idea is that people who have money spend it. And if people who have money have extra money, they spend the extra money. And that is good for the entire economy. So wealth tends to trickle down from those who have it to those who don't. As a general description of the way a great deal of economic growth takes place, that's simply accurate. All right. But it sounds condescending toward the poor, those who are less well off. I understand all that. It's an unfortunate phrase. Here's what you need to bear in mind about the Reagan tax cuts. They were quite deep, but they were across the board. All people who got who paid taxes got their taxes cut. And many people at the low I'm talking about the tax cuts of 1982 and then again in 1986. They both had these features that they were across the board tax cuts. And that in each case, many people, poorer people, were dropped from the tax rolls altogether. Item one. Item two, they helped to prompt an economic recovery so buoyant that, as I say, A, it lasted with just a couple of setbacks, a couple of dips for, for a quarter of a century. And B, growth got up to... uh we in this country right now are hoping to sustain growth between 2 and 3%. Growth got up to 7% at an annual rate for part of the second half. So the recovery begins in about 1983 and continues. And the important point is that among the principal beneficiaries of the economic recovery were poorer Americans. And in particular, I recall this statistic, that among ethnic groups, African-Americans benefited disproportionately highly from economic growth. So you could say trickle-down economics sounds heartless and condescending, but when you produce economic policies that permit vigorous economic growth across the demographic spectrum, you're helping poor people most of all. Okay. Again, going back, switching topics again, going, going back to sort of more your, your era there. We've got, um, the Iron Lady. So 
Yes. Reagan formed quite a bond with Margaret Thatcher. Mm-hmm. There, um, again, we, 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 uh, I'm one generation removed from you. When I talk to, uh, a lot of people who aren't politically inclined, um, they don't look upon her very favorably. Uh, that's I'm because not, they don't remember what life was like in the late seventies in Britain. Perfect. So I'm not saying I'm of that disposition at all. I, I was living in London at the time when her funeral took place. And I remember watching the, the casket come through the, the streets. Um, and so it, it got me thinking about all of this when, when it was going on. And again, the, the misperceptions of her and more importantly, I think the point that tends to be forgotten is in today's sort of standard of whatever wave of feminism it is and being Mm -hmm. told that they'll never be able to achieve or the, the patriarchy, just how strong and how much resolve she had in the face of what was going on. I'll Mm -hmm. ask you to talk about her and you, you mentioned this and and also because of her role within trade unionism and mining and all that was going on. Right. Well, Mrs. Thatcher was an absolutely staggeringly important figure, I think, in British history. Now, I, as I mentioned earlier, I studied in Oxford. I showed up in England in 1979, just a couple of months after she had been elected, after she took office as prime minister. And so I can tell you what England was like in 1979 and 1980 as she was asserting her her policy, her agenda. Let's start there. Okay. It was pretty dreary. It was (laughs) to go from the United States to London was to step very visibly down in living standards. Cars were older and smaller. People wore dingier clothes. Uh, The King's King's Road, which is now a glittering center of fashion, was a dreary, shabby-looking place. Uh, it, it's difficult to describe now, but or uh, and, and my friends at Oxford bear in mind, of course, that Empire, the British Empire, was still within living memory. All my fr- I remember one friend saying to me, one of my grandfathers was a colonial governor in Africa. The another grandfather did wow. this was in India. And here we are stuck on this dreary little island <laughs> with no economy at all. There's no sense of growth, very limited set of sense of prospects. And Mrs. Thatcher came along and said, I'm just not going to put up with this. I will not put up with it. Her diagnosis was that socialism was what was holding Britain back. And that in particular, she had to take on the trades union Congress the great strength that they had was the miners, and there was a real battle. Uh, the 1982, 1983. Um, we now know that Arthur Scargill, who was the running the miners' union, was in the pay, literally in the pay of the Soviet Union. The Soviets were were sending money to the. So the, there was a real battle, and she was. She was in all kinds of, we think of her, it's, uh, we think of her as a wartime leader because of the Falklands expedition, but there was a kind of war taking place within Britain. And she was a, she was a wartime leader in Britain. She had to be strong and in some ways ruthless to do what she did, but she did it and she transformed Britain. One 
smaller uh, incident, but I think all very telling, is that when Rupert Murdoch moved, uh, the unions were killing um, the the British press. It's great. The British press is the greatest press in the world. So vigorous and sassy and well-written and readable. And the unions were just squeezing the profits out of the British press so that nobody wanted to invest. And you, I, I was about to say you may remember this. Of course, you won't remember it, Jesse, because you're too young. But Rupert Murdoch simply suddenly moved his operations to an entirely new plant in Wapping, I think it was, and locked the union out. And Mrs. Thatcher supported him. And in my judgment, and that there were some very ugly moments there, union protests, police mounted on horses, had to, had to escort workers into the plant past jeering union and people did lose their jobs. There's no doubt. This was ugly and difficult. People did lose their jobs. Miners, mines did close. Towns in Wales, mining towns did fall on hard times, but it had to be done. She saved the country. Today, the British economy is the most vibrant in Europe. And the British press is once again, well, of course, much of it has moved online, but the British press is, I I shouldn't say this to an Australian because I'm sure the Australian press is vibrant as well. I don't know much about the Australian press, but the British press is, is great to this day. Well, we're still dominated. I mean, Rupert Murdoch's an Australian, so uh, yes, we're, yes, of we're, course. we're dominated by his. We have uh, we have News Limited, which is uh, his property, which, yes. who I worked for as well um, previously some some years ago, and we have the the Fairfax Media outlet. So we've got the the Australian uh, newspaper, which is sort of our national politics one, and then yes. we've got our sort of equivalent of the the Daily Mails, which are our Daily Telegraphs uh, out here as well. And who, and the Fairfaxes own the Telegraph? Uh, Fairfax, uh, is now moving into the digital space, but Fairfax has partnered, uh, they've been bought out by Nine, which is a television company, but they're traditionally oh, are more left Time Warner type titles out here. Got it. Mm. Got it. Mm. Got it. By the way, is it the Fair, is there a Fairfax family? Uh, I believe that they're, Yes, yes, there was because okay. sure, I know that right. there's a lady Fairfax who's quite a, very much into philanthropy. Right. Again, it's it, it's it's very odd because I live here, but I, I've been here, so I'm still gradually learning a lot of Australian history after a decade right. and a half. While at the same time, I'm asking you about American history because I was always, you know, viewing it through cable TV growing up for for the most right. part back home in Canada. Um, Falklands War. I find this very, very interesting because to me it right. was sort of more of a skirmish, if you will. And again, and not something right. that happened when I was very, very young in a very, very small territory that's nowhere mm-hmm. near or arguably even worth defending off the coast of South America. Can you just politically, why was this such a big deal at the time and, and what was happening? Because there was a principle at stake. It was British territory, yes. That's it was a holdover from empire, but the principal stake was democratic self-determination. The people of the Falklands had now I can't remember the details here, but in polls or votes that was very clear that the people of the Falklands heavily considered themselves British, British. They wanted to remain part of Britain. They themselves considered themselves British. Uh, They were little places, but they were functioning democracies and they considered themselves British the Argent- Argentina at the time was run by a military junta that didn't even have a pretense of democracy, and they just invaded. The islands may have been small, but if Mrs. Thatcher had permitted the Argentines to take them, she would have been permitting the principle 
she would have been admitting that a tyranny could simply take a democracy. And you know that um, Britain, Britain went to war against Nazi Germany on that same principle when Germany invaded Poland in 1939. The principle mattered to her. What was the um, – you obviously hold uh, Thatcher in high regard. Very high regard. What did you know about her in her time? Again, uh, taking it back to the point of, of being a, a female leader at this period in time, mm-hmm. I think that for, from the outside looking in, obviously, I think that's why she had to have such a hardened exterior. But do you know mm-hmm. much about sort of the, the battles and, and it, you know, if she had to uh, deal with the perception of not being taken seriously as a woman at, at that point in time? Yeah, the, the, I observed this as a student in England at the time, and in years since, I find her so fascinating that I've read a great deal about her, and one of my closest friends is a man called John O'Sullivan, a British journalist, and John was a speechwriter for Mrs. Thatcher at the same time I was a speechwriter for Ronald Reagan, so I gave John a tour of the White House, and he gave me a tour of Number 10 Downing Street. So I have friends, but I can't speak to it as an eyewitness, of course, but I've I've done my reading and talked to a lot of people who worked with her and knew her. And you're on to something there. We've just – Britain has just lost its – Mrs. May stepped down. We've lost – Britain has just lost its second female prime minister. It doesn't – didn't seem revolutionary when she became prime minister. But we're, cast your mind back to the late 70s. When the leader of the Tory party was Edward Heath, the Tory party was still dominated by – it was entirely dominated by men. It was still dominated by men who'd been to certain schools. It was still in all kinds of ways a holdover from the old British ruling class, which Mrs. Thatcher could not abide, not because they were bad people, but because the ruling class was complicit in British decline. And she had to take on Edward Heath. The original plan was that uh, she looked up to a man. They were very close friends called Sir Keith. Uh, well, he was later became knight. He was Keith Josephs. And it was the plan for him to take on Edward Heath. And then Josephs lost his nerve. He just couldn't go through a battle like that. And she stepped in. This is the marvelous thing about Mrs. Thatcher. It's a a trite way of putting it, but she was stronger than the men in the party. And she had to be to stand up and win the leadership. Excuse me, I'm not. This is before she became prime minister. First, she had to win the leadership of the Tory party. And to do that, she had to take on Edward Heath, who'd been prime minister twice, was a major figure in the party, but a soft socialist, paternalistic, complicit in British decline. And she had to step in. When her own ally and in many ways her mentor, Keith Joseph, decided he simply wasn't up to the fight. Mm. What about um, – again, you weren't in her inner circle, but were there any stories? No. It, it, it's, it seems uh, – again, it seems like there would probably be some difficulty with the perception of her you know, sitting at the table with other uh, foreign leaders. And I guess you know, the, stepping into that role as the leader of a country being a, a female at that point in time. Yes, that – she – Again, we talked earlier about the contrast between Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush. I was struck over and over again by the contrast between Mrs. Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, I argued a moment ago, was very widely read, but he wasn't an intense student like Mrs. Thatcher. Mm. She mastered every detail 
of economic policy, monetary policy. When during the Falklands crisis, she read up on all the details of what it took, what it cost, how many ships were involved in sending the British expeditionary force, how much damage could an Exocet missile do? You remember the the Argentines launched this French missile, the Exocet, against the Sheffield. I think Prince Andrew was aboard the Sheffield, tore a big hole in a British ship. Okay, she knew all the details of this. Ronald Reagan was not a detail man. She could be quite hard and driven, and he always liked to be perceived as very relaxed. She could be very brittle and intense in meetings, and he always was sunshine. This contrast between, and yet the two of them, and furthermore, it was not always the case that American and British interests were aligned. Mm. They had a quite, well, the most famous incident is when we invaded Grenada, which was Flyspeck Island, though it was, it was part of the British Commonwealth. And nobody thought to inform the prime minister. I don't know, actually, the detail. It's my impression, frankly, that nobody even thought to inform the prime minister. There must have been some diplomat in the State Department who recognized that we were about to invade a member of the British Commonwealth. But the other bit was that the mission put, got put together very quickly and secrecy was considered very important. But there were, I, my friend Edwin Meese, who was uh, very close to President Reagan, told he was with Ronald Reagan when Mrs. Thatcher telephoned him, having learned that an invasion of Grenada was underway. And she gave him such a tongue lashing that Ronald Reagan held the phone away from his ear. He couldn't stand to listen to it. And Ed Meese could hear Mrs. Thatcher tear into Ronald Reagan. And Reagan made the, apologized, understood her point, tried to mollify her. And then he hung up the phone, put the phone down and said to Ed Meese, what a magnificent woman. He just, he just admired her toughness and her smarts. But yes, but yes, the, the the notion she had to be, I don't, all, all kinds of people, even Ronald Reagan, this is, I'm no expert on the psychology of all this, but she had to portray herself as very strong. But at the same time, I've heard over and over again from people who dealt with her that she was still, she still maintained a certain femininity. There was something, there you you were never in doubt that you were in the presence of actually a very beautiful and accomplished woman, lady. Mm. I had a couple of experiences of her myself, although it was always after she was prime minister. Sure. And she, one at one point I was able to, my children were very tiny at that point. In fact, one of them was still a baby. And I have a picture someplace of Mrs. Thatcher posing with my little kids. And she was very motherly, very sweet. She just stroked one's hair asks, bent down to chat face to face with another one. Very sweet and very motherly. And then another event, what was it? That's right. This was soon after she had stepped down as prime minister. And I was at the British embassy. I was there as a journalist and she was doing interviews and I'd never seen anything quite like this before, but she had had her people. She was a former prime minister, but she still had people who worked with her set up interviews. There were two or three rooms in the British embassy where television crews had been set up and she gave an interview in one room and then she got up and moved to the other room and <laughs> sat down and gave another interview. And meanwhile, they're breaking up the crew from room number one and a new crew is going and she went back and forth. She must have given five or six interviews 
Every one of them. She chose every word beautifully. She remained totally poised. Um, it was just a remarkable performance. Her sheer energy. Uh, just to ask you that, what, having viewed this, uh, you know, in the flesh at this point in time, how difficult is it to sort of uh, to move from one interview to the next, or to deliver the same speech on the campaign trail and and try to act as though it's it's fresh, important ideology to you? That's almost the way that an actor has to do press. It sounds quite exhausting to me to have it's to hard. retell it's the same hard. thing continuously. Yes. It's hard work. That's why Ronald Reagan said he was famous for saying he didn't see how anybody could be president if he hadn't been an actor. Now, he meant that half in jest and uh, his enemies said, ah, see, he's see how shallow he is. But what he meant was the technical aspects of public presentation require some work. Ronald Reagan would walk into a room. He would glance down. There'd be a piece of tape on the carpet. He understood that was his mark. He'd go to the mark. He'd know immediately if the key light was in the right position. He would wait for a moment. He'd glance over to make sure that the cameraman had his was set. I mean, he knew there was a lot going on in his mind. And at the same time, he would he'd be smiling and waving and acknowledging the applause at the same time that he was in charge of the technical aspects of what was taking place. There was one, this is shortly after Gorbachev, this must have been 87, 88, I can't remember, but when Gorbachev visited Washington, the visit takes place, Gorbachev gets on the plane and leaves, heads back to Moscow, and I wrote the speech that Reagan delivered the following morning in a hotel ballroom in Washington, and there was several hundred people in attendance. It was the Washington establishment in attendance. I remember seeing Mrs. Graham, the publisher of the Washington Post in the front row. And he got about a third of the way into the speech and the hotel ventilation system kicked on. (laughs) And his, the sheets on which the speech was printed, which we called half sheets because they were literally eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper cut in half. So they would fit in his jacket pocket. And the half sheets were blown off the lectern, up into the air, and onto the floor, scattered all around him. And the audience gasped. It was terribly embarrassing. And there's the President of the United States leaning over and slowly picking up one card after another. He spends a moment or two beginning to put them back in order at the lectern. But he begins. He becomes conscious that the audience is uncomfortable, shifting. It's an embarrassing moment. So he starts to go. He continues with the speech. And I knew, because I'd written the darn thing, what was happening. And what was happening was that as he delivered the speech, he rewrote it. He he did not take the time to put all the cards back in order because the audience was shiftless and, and uncomfortable. And so he he extemporized transitions from one point to another. He gave the speech in an order different from the order in which I had written it. And nobody knew Anything unusual was taking place. It was a flawless performance. Not many people could pull off something like that. He was just technically very, very adept. Peter, will you do a part two with us? <laughs> Not this afternoon. Not I just today. Got a text. I got a text from my wife saying, 
that I'm expected home. I understand that completely. I'm just looking. You're, we, a, you're been... a married man yourself. It actually, it's about the second text. I'm afraid what will happen if I wait for a third text. I understand. My day's just beginning over here, but um, I, I really appreciate your time. And, and to be honest, you know, when, when we discussed doing this, I said it was going to be a, a free-flowing conversation, and we've not even gotten into any of the amazing people that you've been able to speak to and the modern Republican Party. So if you're happy to, I'd like to look at continuing this perhaps sure, again when we have some sure, time. Sure, sure. I'd be, I'd be delighted. I just can't right now. It's the <laughs> end of the day of my time. I'm, I'm also asking to end because, believe it or not, I have work that I'm supposed to be doing. So There you go. Okay. <laughs> All right. Look, we will end it there for today. We'll see if we can look at, at picking this up again at some point in the coming weeks. Um, and look, I really appreciate your time, and I appreciate your, your openness and, and sharing with us. My pleasure. Jesse, good to talk to you. You as well, and we'll speak again good, soon. Good luck with whatever the rest of the day holds for you. All right. Cheers.